वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक दिस इन टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द सेलफोन नेम्ड डिजायर बोथ द ऑब्जेक्ट एंड द मेटाफोर विथ मोर सेलफोन कनेक्शन इन द वर्ल्ड टुडे दैन द ह्यूमन पॉपुलेशन personal mobile communications is arguably the most pervasive technological innovation ever the concepts that are likely to come up include context aware computing media interface theory elements of proprioception neurological with a neurological basis with which dr vidita vedya will touch upon afterward nerves how is memory formed um social and behavioral implications and whether we are enchanted by it in some sense we'll get into areas of hci selfie um how does the technology diffusion work and so on and we'll also speculate on the long term future of memory social relations cognition and individualization we are very pleased to have today force and talkers around the table Biju Dominic who is the founder of Final Mile Consulting and works to understand and influence human behavior Professor Anirudh Joshi who is from IIT Bombay and works in the area of interaction design for Indian needs Dr Vidita Vaidya who is a neuroscientist from TIFR Bombay works in the area of mechanics of how experience changes the brain and is particularly interested in the early window of life and paromita vora who's a filmmaker and writer based in bombay um anirudh can we set the ball rolling with uh, some kind of a very brief outline of how the cell phone came to be and how how we are so enchanted by it how 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 is hardware and software interplayed with each other because clearly there must have been a point in time 10 years ago where it could have taken off but it did not and there could have been a time 10 years later when it could have taken off and it did not so what were the different technological waves at play and how has it all come together in your view well if you see if you see the history of devices and computers in general then uh you know people were struggling to make uh these devices sort of work and work for people for a fairly long time for about 30 or 40 years mm-hmm. it's only in the 80s where uh actually people figured out how to make hardware of right. any kind computer hardware of any kind right and uh it also triggered off this moore's law the costs started falling and then uh the computers and devices became cheaper and cheaper for people to uh use them and then people started finding more applications mm-hmm. then by the time it came to the 90s uh it took basically time till the 90s where people could figure out how to make software mm-hmm. that could run on that hardware mm-hmm. so well people made software obviously before that and people made hardware obviously before that but people hadn't figured out exactly you know how to put things together in such a way that it will become a successful thing in the market Uh, but how does it work does it work in lockstep to does hardware and software broadly move forward or there's a software waiting for hardware to evolve well they always move in lockstep but the hardware has to be ahead of the software in the sense that uh you can't just make virtual hard software and keep it there until and you have to run it somewhere right so so in that in that sense you know you always conceive software before hardware but actually it gets made hardware gets made before software gets made Mm-hmm. uh yeah so it was not until the 90s that we could figure that out right uh right. and then once we could figure that out then people said okay how can i make it usable mm-hmm. and then how can i improve the experience of that use mm-hmm. and then what other things i can do with it for example can it become uh you know i can socialize with the help of it or i can you know uh go beyond the current market so the market started expanding in a big way only in the last i would say 10 or 15 years so i think that's that's where we are in 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 a short span where we are now seeing the uh, market just suddenly expand and in this uh, in this uh, effort to make it more usable and work on user who does that is it is it done by 
the hardware community is it done or is it in, is it an ecosystem and one thing leads to another and it all keeps taking off well there are multiple approaches obviously uh, so if you look at certain some, some companies they will work both on hardware and software simultaneously some companies will work on uh, ecosystem but uh, so if you look at it from a designer's point of view yeah uh, the designers try to be holistic I mean, mm-hmm. because they are sort of centered around people rather than around businesses or technologies right so designers in all of these communities try to think of everything mm-hmm. uh, but some companies also tend to look at you know doing things together whereas other companies tend to sort of split it up and specialize so that they can focus on so there are different business models i think but have, have have cell phones always been cool or there was a point in time when it suddenly became cool because um, clearly it's cool today well if 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 you, if you see till about 2007 right. okay so cell phones were in, in the indian market at least they were about less than uh, 10% of the population had cell phones right okay uh, 10 or 12% of the population at that That's time before had. the smartphones came in yeah and then well uh yeah so smartphones had something to do with it but that subsequently right. yeah much before i would say this is when the feature phones were just becoming very popular but they were becoming popular in about 10 or 12% of the population right uh then around 2007 is when we can see the inflection point where suddenly there is a big take off and then they went all out in urban context at least in the indian context and then they started a big penetration in the rural context around that time so and then uh they kind of basically solve the basic need of connectivity you know like my uh, yeah. it's it's a an identity that gets connected to the phone and they kind of solve that in some way right right and then right. suddenly there there was a lot of and there was a simultaneous i mean there several curves probably intersected at that point the costs became meaningful and many technologies became uh, available so that you could you know so you could develop uh translations in multiple languages and look and localize it for multiple communities and so all that suddenly started happening around that time right 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 with that let me move to you and obviously some of this is uh, at a very very macro level but at at a purely human level is our brain changing as a result of what the smartphone manages to do to us and what we manage to do to it uh, have we have we externalized the memory and so on and so forth so, you know what i mean yes so i can't imagine that any device that you interact with for that many hours a day does not have a feedback onto your nervous system because it does right. so one probably drastic example of this is how much we've forgotten the art of writing yes so all of us wrote um especially those of us of a generation that grew up writing exams regularly wrote yes. really long exams but now if you were put to the task of actually writing for 2 hours you would now find that motor skills have begun to deteriorate mm. partly because you switched over to being a keyboard user you know you right. start right. typing on the computer and um what you use when you write is just a small component of what you use and each finger is represented within your somatosensory cortex right when you use all fingers your somatosensory cortex is reorganized very differently from when you use just two so yes. of course there's constant feedback which is why for example a pianist has a far more complex looking somatosensory cortex than you and I would have right right now someone who's right. using um somebody who's doing video gaming mm-hmm. because of a joystick and because of the idea that you now have to navigate space and really have to have fast hand eye motor coordination is reorganizing their brain by going through that experience and that's why for example probably a easy example would be if you and I were to learn how to play tough video games now it'd be much harder than for a 10 year old kid to do it yes. so if you just look at the performance index it's not simply your learning capacity it's how plastic your brain is in terms right. of being able to make change right and so i certainly think it is in terms of the most simple motor engagement with this device and how motor cortex or sensory cortex is changing but i think it's more complex than that because it's also a extension of your social universe yes and by being that it becomes a part of your social reward circuitry yeah um since yeah. we are very social organisms yeah. and it's a societal structure that we function in which is dependent on reward and a social reward this becomes one of the multiple forms that provides reward information back to the brain and by doing that it enforces that particular relationship more and more and purely so, at a neurological level does it is it in any way akin to addiction is it is it addictive as yet or that would be pushing it too far um not really i mean it can be and the, th- the question is what is the definition of addiction is is yes. is where one sort of you know um 
so gambling is is clearly an addiction and it can clearly become an addiction so anything that hijacks reward circuitry to the extent that it takes away focus on natural rewards yep. is definitely an addiction so your natural rewards are food water sex social interaction those are your standard national rewards for our species right but we also respond to rewards of the chemical kind we also respond to rewards of the monetary kind yeah. and those rewards when they override the ability to get the same sense of rewarding pleasure from natural rewards can hijack the circuitry right so right, now right. if i w- i would say that if you have uh, something like a phone which is providing you stronger social reward than individuals providing you social reward such that you become dependent on that yes you could tip to a point where your percept of social reward comes far more from a physical object than it does from your con specifics or members of your own species which is which is other human beings so in that sense Yes, you could slip down that road. It is certainly tapping into reward circuitry mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's tapping in in multiple ways into reward circuitry socially, but also in terms of what else it provides you. Right, right? Games are on these smartphones, and so you have a very quick sense of becoming part of communities that are not real communities, but are communities that are virtual. But these are not people you know. But you become part of a entire social structure very quickly and, and get feedback. Purely- at a purely neurological level is that the same kind of network does the brain know that it's virtual and not real well um reward at the end for the brain is going to be a release of dopamine right so the brain for example releases dopamine whether it was cocaine or it was dopamine released by finding somebody whom you love right so for the brain it's a percept of a change in dopamine levels right of course the degree of dopamine levels varies between a variety of rewards and addiction often is when the circuits hijack to the point that natural rewards cease to be rewarding yeah and you need the sort of high you get when you can only do it artificially to that extent i wouldn't say the cell phone will ever kick into the level that pharmacological rewards do which hijack yes. it Yes. to the extreme extent. Yes. But gambling one would say is not a natural in that sense of you would look at gambling and say where's the pharma where's the drug? Right. Right. It's extremely addictive. Right. So that so reward circuits are made to reinforce behaviors and they were critical for the survival of our species. So right. those circuits are and very robust. And obviously entire world you know? of online gaming and online Absolutely. lottery which Absolutely. which kind of fuses the two. So yeah, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that that you could in the extreme version have that as well. um biju how do you look at this is this uh, some level changing our behavior even in the non virtual world in some form do you think there is an element of um, there being ex- being an extended self an externalized memory um, change real relations to which um to which there's no correlation really from from a virtual standpoint as a behavior changing as a result of what 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 i think i would say yes um uh, it, it look at a situation when three or four of us are just chatting in a round and suddenly i get a, a call on my on my mobile phone and what i then do is that i just immediately shut myself off from all of you so there is precedence to that yeah yes so then there is a way so i've clearly moved out and then i get into a very completely different context from a behavior point of view yeah and um, that could be a, a, a you know at a, at a perceived level a very different context from the context that we are in and there there's a lot of emotions that i carry from that conversation and after that few conversation i come back and you can almost see in a typical behavior when you look at people who say oh i'm sorry right. you know he he sort sort of sorry that he sort of cut you I man i'm very sorry that i cut all of you off you know i know you were sort of there and now i'm sorry i'm coming back and taking permission to come back into this particular group so you can see uh, this is clearly created uh, because in, in a until mobile phones came in we really changed context almost in a while being physically in the same context right. the the physical context that we were in was the context in which we moved from here maybe from a playground we would have moved to uh, some other place because that might have changed our behavior but this has created a situation where you can be in different behavioral so different context and so i believe multiple identities almost exactly and different context always creates different behaviors and different identities in you and right. and the mobile phone has all the ingredients to make that multiple personality if i could call it uh, right. happen right paramita you you know you're a documentary filmmaker you you've been behind the camera and in front of it in some form 
um, do you think that the subject changes uh, when when he or she is being looked at or the I mean what does the camera lens do to to I mean to the, an occasion to a person to whatever so I don't think that it is as simple as the camera lens you know right uh, because every interaction between somebody who is a subject and somebody who's looking at the subject yeah. uh, is individual and it's different right, right. so an inter- in an interview yeah i am as much in the performance as you are in the performance and it's a right. joint performance at all times right. and the lens is a kind of example of that right. and it it fixes that i am looking at you Right. and you either like being looked at or you determine how is it that you want me to look at you how right? would you analyze the phenomenon of selfie uh, it, it wasn't there until a few years ago when you know suddenly heads of state and everyone else is taking yeah, selfies, selfies now but i think selfie is a very interesting like a, a complication it's yeah. the complication that the cell phone itself creates i think for people because mm-hmm. if you track back to the telephone instrument you know yeah. entering people's lives in domestic spaces and i think it's an object of tremendous fantasy because it's the one of the ways in which we separate our ourselves like we fragment ourselves that i am only sound to right. another person and right. so i can shape shift i can be seen as anything i can transcend the limitation and the boundaries of my terrestrial being and suddenly be something else and right. i feel somehow this is very important to us as people you know a fantasy notion of the self which is maybe not a fantasy mm-hmm. but it's constantly a desire to escape the limits that your gaze sets on me right and the telephone or even the playback song you right. know playback singing is the same type of thing where you create these fragmented holes in a right. sense right. that i am this i am that i am this and and our myths also show that this is very alluring and important for us somehow and i think you know to speak to the idea that software is always conceptualized before hardware right. that hardware is in a sense created in order to meet the needs of the software we desire which is also something in film that software people tell us that you know we are designing a software that you don't yet know you want right you know it's for you to do the things you don't know you want to do and right. actually i feel that is quite central to everything that we do in the world around us right so i think that the the telephone and this fragmentation it speaks somewhere to our desire for that conflict in us as humans of being anonymous but being recognized Right. We want to be like everyone else but we want to be away from everyone else. We want to belong but we want to be separate. And this tension actually maybe describes everything in our lives, right? right? And the phone was the example of that. It's also the always the continuous possibility of the unknown like gambling in a sense right. that I might a phone call might come that will change my fortunes. The one that I'm whose voice I'm waiting to hear will suddenly call me. The boy I like in school for no reason will call me up, right? right. So this expectation of the unknown which also transcends the boundaries of a known life. I guess the telephone symbolizes that. And the cell phone in a way makes it possible for us to have that privacy all the time even in the public world right which once was only which was locked to land that i had to be near the phone and then only i am in this private world even everybody else is around me now right. suddenly i can do that everywhere i go which so is great it's a very individualized kind of object obviously well, it's, self- it's about it's being a secret self in that right. sense right the right. phone yes and the cell phone but the cell phone has complicated it because it has taken anonymity away because you can see who's calling you everything is known everything is tracked Yeah. And the selfie I keep feeling it's a response to this idea. Right. It's like I will control how I am seen by taking a photo of myself as opposed to somebody else taking a photo of me. This need to see be seen and to have like shifting control. It's an interplay of human interaction I think which I'm not so qualified to speak about, you know, but sure, I sure. feel that it it defines it is like love and sex. and this continuous transfer of power and exchange of power that we do that i will be something then you will be something the performative aspect of life in a way is encompassed in the selfie and i mean i don't want to go on to long but the thing is i did a tv series uh, which was entirely self shot by six women they shot their own lives for a year right. and what is very interesting is that this combined idea that it is real what i'm doing yeah but it's a completely controlled reality yeah and I remake my reality yeah. as a fantasy reality. Yeah. So it's very interesting that it's not an escapist fantasy. Yeah. But it's a fantasy which is very you, you strongly tied to form. reality. Yeah. Right. It's a terrestrial fantasy which I think is very new and unusual 
maybe even a limiting thing i don't know i don't know what it means right now but this is the only thing i feel the selfie does that it it locks what was away into what is here medita is there a limit to how many identities one can have of oneself in, from a no no clearly not right, right. i mean we uh, have multiple different images of ourselves that we project to the world and in different interactions with different individuals there's often a different aspect of yourself that comes to play um i think i agree with the point that paramita said which is this gives you the chance to constantly fine tune this but mm. not do it in private but fine tune this and do it in public right. so you constantly have an audience right. and so you're you've set some idea of what you like your identity to be to this audience and you're constantly fine tuning this identity for this audience and yep. then waiting for the feedback to refine tune once more and see um, you know whether this is working so in that sense it's a massive social interaction that's going on and because it's social and we are such social beings it's highly rewarding and that's where this whole the like the thumbs up like culture component comes from is i bet that's giving you a dopamine you right, know right. rush in your brain it's the sort of rush you get when somebody likes you and you get it from seeing someone and then say this this is a nice chemistry this is working this person actually likes me and it's a very nice happy feeling that happens when you meet somebody and you like them you've just now artificially converted that to getting that feeling by looking at it and getting the feeling of i actually somebody likes me That's so but that how much of this feeling. is pavlovian how much of this is a case where i mean just just the object becoming a fetishistic kind of object and well, just just this process of logging into something probably releasing the dopamine or whatever that is so um, i mean that's an interesting point i wonder if you you would lose all of that if you did not believe that that object was connecting you to your social Right. If it was connecting you to some, so there's a really interesting set of studies that people did where they looked at um, oxytocin in interactions between individuals, and this was a uh, was kind of a ga- gambling and risk and yeah. sort of a experiment, yeah. and it's based on classical studies that were done in rodents, but this was this was a particular study done in humans. Yeah. And what they did is, you know, they took a bunch of graduate students, put them in a room, they didn't know each other, yeah. and then they said that, you know, they gave them a chance to mingle, so you'd had a chance to see each other. Right. And then you went out into this out into the room and you were given a certain quantum of money. Mm-hmm. And then you were put into a pair situation where you mm-hmm. had the opportunity to share all of it, right. half of it or none of it. And right. then the experimenter would quadruple whatever amount was shared. Right. And the individual you shared with could split it, could give you more than so there was a chance here with a risk. Yeah. to enhance your eventual investment and for graduate students it's very important right yes. everybody <laughs> likes that little bit of money you can take back and you know so um absolutely all of us <laughs> so that little so that that was so this is an interesting experiment because they did this with individuals who had had a puff of oxytocin versus those that hadn't so it was a nasal right. puff and what they found is that those who had taken a nasal puff tended to be more willing to trust right. the other individual mm-hmm. except that when you change the design and instead of providing trust to an individual you provide a trust to a computer oxytocin doesn't work when the object yeah. on the other side yes. is a computer yes. Yes. so what i'm wondering is if you had this object and um, you know for example even a virtual reality world where there are a whole bunch of people you still know that that's some real human being somewhere who's created a virtual reality of their own and eventually you do segregate enough the strongest rewards are from individuals who are still part of a peer circle that matters to you right so i wondered if it would disappear to that extent if you removed these individuals completely and um i think that then you you would have problems necessarily feeling the same degree of reward so you don't oxytocin doesn't work when you have to trust a computer because then you know you're really taking a complete uh, you know leap into the dark So this is where uh, Prof. Joshi, in a way, the concept of human-human interaction, as you were talking mm. about, kind mm. of comes in. Though, even though we are interacting with the computer or the phone in this case, mm. uh, there is there is a human being behind it in some form. Yeah. And how you would think of net banking when you put your password in is different from how you would think of another person on the other side in the chat room and some such. Sure. And 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 you know, there's another interesting uh, thing here that I wanted to retort though, which is sort of almost an opposite behavior that we see in some of the indian contexts uh, mm-hmm. where you know we were interviewing some people uh, who were using atms this is in 2002 right. when atms were just becoming popular in india uh, so we were out in streets of mumbai and just looking at whoever comes out of the atm and we were sort of interviewing them yeah and so we it happened that we kind of at that time interviewed a bunch of people 
who apparently did not have a lot of education and they sort of not the what you would expect to be the white collar workers but they were some one of them was an electrician somebody was a plumber and so or uh, right. people of a peon in an office so they were kind of coming out of the atm and we were just wondering you know we were kind of amazed to find there was a panwala for example so we found out you know, why the hell are these people using the atms at this time and uh, what they fa- what we realized is that socially yeah uh, in india they will get they will feel more alienated in a physical branch yeah. of a bank Oh, then yeah. inside an atm so in an atm so actually firstly you have to go and write something every time you visit a bank you have to write something or the other yeah so and even if you are literate if you are not used to writing your handwriting like my i am literate but like my handwriting is dipping as you said yeah. so uh, so your handwriting so may be bad impersonal impersonal is better in this yeah impersonal is better in this case right 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 And, and and even if even if the computer says something you know it says you are an idiot you can't even do this mm-hmm. even then uh it's okay it's inside, it's inside a closed room all our atms are enclosed so right. so you know you're alone out there and so it's okay you can manage it whereas in a bank it's sort of always crowded and in front of everyone if somebody asks you know even politely you know what is written over here it becomes a bit of an embarrassment for you if you think of yourself as biju would you extend that and say that it's simpler to be oneself when one is with one's cell phone or a computer because the risk of embarrassment the risk of uh, in, in a way this impersonal layer kind of saves us uh, you're right i think uh, <clears throat> if uh, if you just look at some other images i mean i wish i could do that particular study uh, for example you know the images of you know what sort of facial expressions that you give when yeah. you do a selfie yeah. vis-a-vis when the facial expressions you give when someone else is taking your photograph yeah. i just get a feeling that they are a bit different uh-huh. uh, at least seeing my daughter's selfies because <laughs> i always ask her why you make all this you know weird faces right. when you when when uh, you know when you do a selfie right. uh, and and two for example i think uh, what professor joshi was talking about we can see it if i go to a bank and and i have to draw 50 rupees because that's all what is left in my account yeah. i'll feel very embarrassed to walk and then go stand in the line you know and almost tell as if i you know not that the teller minds whether you got 50 or 50 lakhs he just continues but for me i feel very embarrassed that i'm exposing myself by going to a environment whereas it is a very you know sort of absolutely no personal environment i can be yeah. far less concerned about the amount of money that i withdraw from there but the another point i want to bring on the selfie is you know i'm taking a different perspective and i thought the first time the man looked at his image uh, in in the river and yeah. looked at that image yeah. to me that was a first selfie yeah. <laughs> uh, and 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 later on when we looked at ourselves and you know in our mirror yeah. and looked at ourselves and we started sort of looking at and sort of i know there was a dopamine release when i felt good about the way i was looking at yeah. uh, to me there were selfies but those selfies couldn't be captured for yeah. posterity yeah. Uh, to me this is a sort of a, a technology allowing me to take a selfie and then you know there with me for a, a longer time so, so that the, desire has been there the Mahal, you know. <laughs> there are so many of those pictures yeah so right. that 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 to me selfie is also it's a continuum from from an evolutionary point of view and yeah. technology is allowing me to capture that that moment with me with myself and the way i want to look at myself i think that's what paramla was saying i just want to see the way i want and i try different things i twist my face i look you know all that i do and i just look at myself and see how i'm looking at so it's almost a simultaneous process of individualization and socialization right where where they both happening at the same time um vidita would you say that in some shape and form the cell phone has become an extended self are there proprioceptive um circuitry yes. behind it in some so form so i don't know i don't know if anyone's done that sort of an experiment but certainly you know uh, so the, just going to sort of risolatti's experiments the original experiments that yes. led to the understanding of mirror neurons in the brain right. it was a very cool experiment where he was just he had recording neurons in an area of frontal cortex which is where these mirror neurons are right yes. he called the mirror neurons uh, partly because every time he would go in and start to set up the experiments these neurons would fire right and it was extremely <laughs> 
confusing because he was actually hoping these were pre-motor neurons and they would fire when the monkey did something. Right. Till he figured out that the monkey's brain was responding to him doing that specific action. Right. And once he realized, and this is really interesting because this seems to be something that's fairly specific to it's in circuits very close to language, right? So this yeah. has led to the idea that uh, that you now, your brain now responds to not your own actions, but to the predicted well, motor actions of, action. of, uh, of somebody else. Yeah. So the fact that those circuits activate, and very often with what happens with dope reward circuits, what happens with, with these circuits is they get predicted. Yeah. They start uh, firing now long before the event happens. They unpair from the event and they pair to predictors of the events. Right. So in that sense, the cell phone is really is an extension of one's self for a lot of people. I mean, I think it's not true for me, partly because TIFR is in a relative self-free, <laughs> cell phone free zone. So sometimes sure. I don't. But uh, for a lot of people, uh, there's an anxiety associated now with being decoupled from it. And that's sort of interesting to me. I mean, you know, if it wasn't an extension of yourself, why should there be any concern if it discharged itself for four days? Right. Frankly, nothing terrible is going to happen. I mean, if there's right. something really catastrophic, people should be able to reach you or should be able to figure out a way to contact you. But the idea that your mobile phone has discharged and you now no longer have control over it right. leaves a lot of people fairly anxious. Right. And that sort of makes me think that, yes, it has become, in many senses, your externalized brain. Right. Because you utilize it to tell you everything about your life that's important to you and those are it's recorded in there. You can have it offline. It's available to you when you need it. But yeah. you have not necessarily remembered all those things within yourself. So you are using that in that sense as an extension. Um, and is, is there a trade-off with memory? Uh, for example, as we have more and more pictures yeah, of every so, you know, silly moment so of our this life. Is, this has often been a debate about whether how much information can we actually store. Yeah. Okay? So I, I don't think anybody's ever tested the <laughs> limits of this, right? Yeah. So presumably yeah. the circuits can continue to store and continue to store. The thing with the nervous system is it stores stuff that's useful. Right. And so what is useful for you and me will be different for, for each individual. So right. it's highly oriented to keeping information that's relevant to you. Right. And so, you know, if you, for example, I will not keep information that is utterly irrelevant to me. It may be important for me to remember it, but it's not really relevant. And right. so it's the relevance that often determines the memory of the events. And memories constantly get rewritten over by being brought back up. And that's where I think the cell phone starts becoming very interesting because... It's in the retelling of a story yeah. and in the sharing of a story and the reliving of an experience that a memory gets reorganized. So often mm. our events and recall of events is not actually precisely what happened, but what we have recreated of it. Mm. Yeah. And so it's this part where the cell phone becomes very interesting because suddenly, you know, people put up something about an event that happened 20 years ago. Right. You have completely erased this event from your memory. I mean, you have it has not been relevant to you. Largely, for example, finding friends of, from 20 years ago yeah. who are no longer part of your life anymore, who are no really, yeah. not really socially part mm -hmm. of your milieu, and suddenly you see yourself with them. Yeah. So yeah. now you have to recreate meaning to those relationships. Sense-making, So yeah. that reforces for you, again, a reliving of experiences, some of which <coughs> you don't have any recollect of anymore because they've not been relevant for 20 years. So this is interesting. So what does it do in that situation? Are, there, are these new memories? Are these false memories? No, uh, so, so what we know, at least from animal studies, is yeah. clearly that anytime a memory is recalled, yeah. transiently it becomes labile. And in a sense, what I mean by labile is you have the makings of that memory, but you can tweak it. Right. And so when you tell a story about something that happened in your childhood, it is your story and then your grandmother and your uncle and your aunt and your friends retelling of it that has become the story. Right. Because it is through that reliving of that experience that you've reorganized that memory and it's got consolidated and it's now a solid memory. You are convinced it's exactly what happened. Yeah. But it is also your telling of the story that's consolidated that memory. So uh, Right, right. Please. It, you know, it's interesting because also in terms of perception. Yeah. So I often have this encounter with people who, when they meet me, say, you lost so much weight. And I'm like, no, I was always like this, but I was fatter in your memory or something. You imagine me as being fatter than you are. Right. And conversely, friends say now when they find old photographs online, oh, my God, I used to think I was so bad looking when I was young, but I was actually quite good looking. Right. So this kind of contest of what is remembered <coughs> 
and what is actual is also uh, a thing that we are continuously trying to resolve, I guess. And an interesting example uh, that came to me now is about this artist yeah. who's a fat woman mm-hmm. who decided to do nude selfies, mm-hmm. right? And uh, she has been taking beautiful photographs, like utterly beautiful. So yeah. some of it is how does the cell phone, which is not a very flexible camera yeah. in a way, yeah. how do you use it artistically yeah. to create some images? Because you're not wanting to take realistic images, right. but artistic images. So the right. painterliness or photograph right. photograph creatingness should be replicated in the selfie, which also has a limited arm, right? It's yeah. not, it's not yeah. have that flexibility of an artistic camera. Yeah. Yeah. But what I saw all the photographs that were taken from the time she started to the time she felt she had arrived at the image she wanted. And one of the things she said to me is that if you look at the early photographs I was taking of myself, I am taking them as a thin person. I am not taking a photograph of myself as a fat woman. Right. But I'm taking him from angles which are thin angles, as she called right. it. Which is like, you don't reveal the fatness of your body, or you cover yourself with a towel, or right. you have a certain angle, which right. you can call a thin angle. Right. right. And how, finally, she started breaking down her body into fragmented images. So only taking an image of her breast, or of her thigh, and coming to an acceptance Right. Of what is possibly the real looking her. And right. then arriving at an acceptance of his beauty. So in fact, unlearning the perception of beauty. She knows yeah. it intellectually. Yeah. And that is why she wants to take the nude selfies. Because she wants to say, I too am beautiful as I am. Yeah. I know I am. Yeah. Uh, but she has to unlearn the modes of beauty yeah. and perception and redo it. Yeah. And it's sort of connected to what Anirudh was saying about the ATM users. Or the fact that you have in India this thing too. That we like to use text, yeah. text messaging much more than other parts of the world. Yeah. Because I think somehow we have this privacy. We have such a strong sense of social, social existence yeah. that the need for privacy in which to try out yeah. a self and yeah. perfect that self in a way, even if it's just our real self as we feel it then, but make it okay to be that real self in public also has become a little easier with, with the presence of the cell phone. You know, the interesting thing though is that only the English speaking people in India do texting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Because text input in Indian languages other other than English is not so straightforward. Mm. So yeah. it's a puzzle that has not yet been solved. It's not easy to come up with yeah. SMS so in fact, shorthand. The average SMSs sent in India are something like five uh, percent per year of average SMSs sent in Philippines, which is the SMS Capital, capital of the world. world. <laughs> right, right. So... Right. And is that because the Filipino language lends itself better well, to shorthand? Yeah, well, it's the Roman script which they have right. in most of their languages and so that's why it's easy. Right. Filipino, Filipinos also speak many languages so mm-hmm. they have... But many of them have Roman script so therefore many of these actually Vietnamese, we have the Philippines, they actually use... And many of the African languages use uh, the Roman script as well. So... So texting in is a lot more widespread in these countries and therefore their averages are much higher. And because English is like, you know, what, two, two and a half percent preferred language for Indians. So so for us, those people text a lot, but then nobody else does. And then our averages are really very small. But do you think, uh, Biju, or let me come to you, is, is there a situation where the medium is changing the message? You know, the famous uh, Marshall McLuhan concept of one stage the fact that we have cell phones in our hands is that is that making a thoughts crisper is that making how we communicate crisper is are we changing in the inner language is a language changing as a result of the medium in our hands um if of course of course the language i'm told i hear the thing uh, maybe two things um, obviously the sms's have shortened uh, this whole facet and i'm sure things like twitter has almost made even intellectuals you know who otherwise takes pages to write something suddenly yeah. condense your thought into 40 uh, you know per characters so there is a certain amount of uh, fitting that people have done to their way of communication and language to fit into this particular uh, to to uh, the, the 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 medium 
which we always have done. I think that has always have happened too. So when we move from press to television, initially there would be that little problem where, you know, all the initial uh, television advertisements were almost press advertisements. But suddenly people realize that, you know, television is all about uh, emotions and you start seeing emotions coming in. Yeah. And uh, when the cell phone or the internet, the new mediums came in, we were initially still taking a lot of banner and a lot of communication, communication. Mm. Yeah. But I think the last few years... Uh, as Professor Joshi was talking about, to the last few years is where, after, you know, much after the cell phone are really there, we suddenly realize it is an interactive medium. What are the emotions that you associate with cell phones? What is, is See, I think they're multiple. One, uh, as Vindra was saying, just having a cell phone gives me feeling, oh, I, I'm not You're alone. You're in control. I'm in, yeah, I'm in control. I'm not alone. Right. You know, not that anyone, but in, and the moment that, uh, you know, the cell phone is not there with me or, you know, uh, the, the, the power runs, of course, I get very scared and there's a feeling of, you know, yeah. uh, there. Um, the other is most of the time I've been thinking about it and I don't think, uh, many times, you know, it doesn't create an emotion, but it sort of transfers uh, an emotion from the other person fairly well. So right. to that extent, it is more of a carrier of that particular emotion. But um, but into this particular context, it brings that particular emotion. Uh, other than that security, I'm not too sure about. Uh, so. But possibly I want to go back to another point, which when we were talking about, you know, uh, you know the memories. And right. I want to bring in one facet that, you know, one of the good things about the brain, the brain had a brilliant ability to forget. Right. And <laughs> and it, had, it was a way of, you know, moving on with life. Yeah. And uh, as we said, other than what is evolutionary that was required, I think brain had a brilliant ability to sort of, you know, forget it. Right. But what cell phones is doing with all uh, all the images are, it maybe is not really doing full justice to that particular process. And it can create, you know, and pathologically it's a big problem when people can't forget. And mm -hmm. so people not being able to forget... Uh, is not might not be too good um, as much as we say it revives some of our memories yeah. so it'd be worthwhile to look at that facet of mobile phone and what does uh, does i mean does i mean it does to our you know ability not to forget things yeah i just yeah. wanted to yeah. also add something yeah please. so you know so there is of course this other socio-emotional dimension as well so one of them is, of course, this well-known phenomenon of giving missed calls to each other just yeah. to express rather than to communicate, just yes. to express, you know. Yes. Uh, but other than that, you know, there is also this lot of this about who calls whom or who called whom debate that, you know, I didn't call you, you called me. <laughs> or even the other way around, you know, you reached, but you have not yet told me that you are reached. Okay, we are talking. So, so I mean, that conversation actually is pointless because you are talking and then that means you know the other person is safe. But still, you know, that, that social... And there's and change of social absolutely. norms in and the language and yeah. some pop. So who know. should call whom becomes an interesting thing. That there's a new grammar almost yeah, of what's, yeah. what's acceptable and what's not. How, how would you, just changing tracks a little bit, I mean, there's this entire world of avatars and online other identities and so on. And we seem to invest so much of ourselves, in, you know, either ourselves or developing an alternate self um, in that form. Is... is is it bad? Well, it's a matter of self-projection, you know. So, yeah. so people uh, take a lot of care to, to, for example, have that their image of their uh, when when they change their title image yeah. of themselves, they take a lot of care in selecting that image and expressing. Yeah. It's very very expressive actually. So it's a question of what you want to project yourself to the world first up. Uh, but other than that, also it has a lot of subtler dimensions about what you want to you know, do with uh, yourself and your identity because now you have this one more place where you have an identity basically one more uh, platform for an identity of sorts yeah because there are studies that suggest that for example the first identity that you end up creating online there's almost a form of proteus effect and you end up taking care of it almost as like like your first child and the attachment <laughs> is very very real yeah uh, Vidita, how do you think of uh, this entire side of attention deficit? Because um, obviously, as Biju was pointing out, as we get to 140, 160 characters or whatever that is, and uh, are we are we losing our ability to concentrate? Is our attention span shrinking as a race? Uh, so, I mean, if you just look over the la last however many 
centuries and hundreds of years and even yeah. 50 years yeah. our ability to be by ourselves has been gradually shrinking right systematically i mean part of it is an urbanization phenomenon part of it is just that we are now in cities certainly we are crowded enough so much that it's not that easy to find alone time or alone space right and um once it's not that easy to spend time utterly by yourself without yeah. to be genuinely cut off from anything else that you view as your extension of contact to the but world but is that leading to epigenetic changes are the kids being born today different from the kids for well i mean your boredom's ago? been there forever yes right so we just figured out as a species multiple ways to take care of our boredom and we've yeah. just invented better and better and better ways of getting there but also some of it is because um the most existential questions of our life yeah. one would like to avoid yeah and yeah i mean <laughs> you know and then quietness and utter boredom and utter quietness they cannot be avoided right and so very often uh, it's it's a species result of possibly being the only species that's genuinely aware of its depth yes um and you know that it's pretty incredible that knowing that we have still survived so well and yeah. continue to reproduce and procreate etc so there's some very interesting theories about why that that death awareness has come along with our consciousness expanding right right i mean right. so you have to now fool yourself that there's something further right. or you have to convince yourself that Which or links to, to the concept of fantasy yeah. i mean to you to ensure right. that you don't spend too much time dwelling on it because if you do eventually you may stop doing the essential things that are required for you <coughs> to survive Right. And so there's this constant quandary between needing to um you know do all those things and yet when you sit in utter quietness you may have to reflect on that reality. Right. And so as a species anything that postpones that mm-hmm. is always going to eventually be welcome. I mean it is it is mm-hmm. the the toughest question for any human being to have to face. Most other species thankfully don't have to do it. So I mean however <laughs> right. complex the cognitive architecture of the species is it's still not saying this could cause me to die you know even just now this is still somebody else but it's not that could happen to me hasn't right. yet happened now this that could happen to me comes along with the fear of death and that happens in early life right, right. i mean so right. that's the first awareness that what happened to somebody else can actually also happen to you and that means you're done for is so i think that these are just cues that we have now created to keep ourselves constantly occupied right and um, constant occupation can get pathological it yeah. may not always get pathological but it can yeah. get pathological and yeah. so to that extent um anything that gets to the point where it doesn't allow any room for reflection yeah is dangerous because you could get so dependent on it that in the absence of that when you're forced to then face certain things then it gets pretty terrorizing and it is right. certainly the advent of disorders of the scale it might have something to do with both the pharma industry psychiatrists needing to break things up into components yeah. and also the fact that our social worlds have got incredibly more complex yeah i mean what was the likelihood in the 60s you might get a trunk call from your auntie living in you know wherever abroad right. once in <clears throat> seven months in which you would yell and yell into the phone and then you know say i talk to my aunt and that's it Right. Now you may comment on how badly attired she was to somebody and by fluke chance she hears about it. Right. And you suddenly have the spilling into your social space. Right. And it's a social space which is relevant because you know this person may fly down and you know so right. what has happened is we've now what we have some 500 600 friends on Facebook. You don't have 500 600 friends. In reality. In reality. I mean right. how can those 500 600 people be really relevant to your day to day existence? Yeah, it's not possible. Right? It's just not of, possible. Yeah. Yeah. But um your interactions with them Yeah. and the way you have interacted with them on facebook and on twitter and whatever whatever other modes determines your actual social interaction with them yeah. it spills over so it may not matter that you know i mean so being kind of aloof or not responding to a cell phone can instantaneously convert you into sending out negative messages right so people right. actually will view that as you having you know socially not followed the code so it's certainly changing our social requirements right i think and the, for teenagers it's moved into not 500 1000 hmm, i mean right. that's not tenable we cannot handle that degree of complexity in terms of social interactions so i also wonder if the necessity to have a 1000 or 2000 facebook friends though you are interacting only maybe with 50 or 100 is a necessity for having an audience so the imagined audience of 2000 and com- along with that what you say about your auntie and commenting on her attire 
I wonder also if this kind of risk taking, you know, that it's extend, it's increasing the risk taking that right. we are doing on a daily basis. That something will spill. Something about my carefully calibrated persona will suddenly go into another space, which is thrilling, and is of course representing conquest of death. That I came that close to destruction and I survived. I came that close. I survived. So we are enacting this on a daily basis through Twitter gossip, and now of course this new app on the telephone called Secret. Yeah. where you're anonymous supposedly and you write a secret yeah. and of course I, i mean you read the secret and the first thing you are thinking is who could this be secret is it right. <laughs> who is this and the desire to you already see within a couple of months on that app that people are starting to bring clues to yeah. who they are through the secret so desire to reveal and take the risk just keeps manifesting over and over in these behaviors no no question about it. i mean could also be Um, I mean, it can tip really into pathology. There's no question about it. I mean, it right. it, it really right. can tip into pathology. But Biju, how do you how do you think about that? Is there is our ability to engage socially genuinely expanding? Uh, two, I think uh, it's been studied, and Denmar, I think he came across and long back he said that you know there is a cognitive limit limit to the amount uh, to the number of people that you can interact Probably with. One fifty, one fifty, one forty eight, one fifty, and uh, even after Facebook and all has come, and subsequent studies have clearly said it's still one fifty. Right. I think Amazing. we need to still keep in mind that brain is something that has evolved after interactions over millions of years. Right. And mobile phones has just happened in the last millisecond. Years, whatever, so right. that's not going to dramatically <laughs> change the way. Yeah. I mean, the way our evolutionary the brain has been structured, yeah. uh, that will uh, you know will take precedence over what really happens there. And this is a very clear facet. Yes, Facebook has you know, and again we know this whole uh, uh, you know the weak link, strong link uh, perspective. Right. And maybe what it has done is it is sort of strengthened our weak ties. Sort yeah. of weak ties yeah. and strong ties. So it is sort of might have strengthened slightly the 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 the, the weak ties, but the the maybe over strong side stronger. Yeah, maybe yes, it right. could have, but it's right. not. I think at times we think it's going to dramatically change or something new has come in. But I'm sure maybe 50 years later we'll look back and say that didn't do much. Right. As much as we, for example, when TV came in in the 1950s or 40s, I'm sure we thought that's going to dramatically change our culture. Of course, it has changed. Yeah. But has it dramatically changed? a human being the way they possibly interact with uh, yeah. not too sure yeah. and i want to also bring in one more facet about which is again the way the brain is structured from a sensory point of view an interaction yeah. Yeah. you know we know uh, it's not equally divided between senses it is almost you know predominantly almost 90% and more it's a visual medium visual, visual yeah. is what our sensory systems are really geared up followed by touch yeah and hearing is a very small part of our sensory system yeah. and and the mobile phone comes in only to tap mostly into that yeah. now we can say some imagery is okay is coming in but one of the reasons why i see this is not going to be the predominant mode of transaction because again from a brain point of view we are geared up to build transactions through our visual medium uh, visual senses uh, use our senses of touch a lot about it and you know hearing again is not going to be in as a minor part to yeah. that extent uh, we will see a bounce back yeah. to to uh, where our brain is structured to and and have our our systems gearing up to that particular maybe the mobile phones could change i'm not denying it mobile phones could change but to me the predominant base will still be the way the brain is structured mm, yeah. we will have to adapt our things or whatever comes in subsequently will adapt So no wonder things like YouTube and Instagram and others, which yeah. are largely visual cues, exactly. do so well. Exactly. Exactly. So there will be changes, and yes. so I think it's good to keep the human brain as the as the base of it, as the right. basis, and right. we can say how are things going to adapt. to the way the the brain uh, is actually being created how would you respond to that and yeah so i just wanted to add that something so actually there are some very interesting um, sort of um, uh, two two things kind of slightly contradictory or not contradictory but differing so one is that the adaptation or actually what i what i would like to call is the appropriation mm. of so selfie for example that we were talking about is actually an appropriation of something that was meant for video calling right right so it was right. it was like how many of us have been in a video call on their phones I don't think in Mumbai it works. I mean, I haven't seen a demonstration of it <laughs> working actually. So, but so so, but we appropriated it for making selfies out of that, right? Yeah. Uh, 
And then actually that is also connected with that other thing, you know, that she said, you know, that people who manufacturers or and designers as well should say, you know, come back and say, you don't know what you want and I know what you want. But actually, uh, then you, you as a user can come back and say that, you know, you don't know what I want. I know what I want out of this that you have made. And, and so that's right. the uh, give and take that we have. So we actually, so, you know, as designers, we, uh, we engage with users and we try to find out you know, not only what they want or what they need or how do they do things and so on and try to fit into that. But obviously we get it wrong every time, but that doesn't matter because on the other side, the users are also smart and mm -hmm. intelligent and they will appropriate it and they will put the right things for the right use. Yeah, in the yeah, way they like yeah, it. yeah. Selfie, missed call, these yeah, are all, all appropriations are, of something yeah. that was not intended. Let I mean, if we just spend the last 10 minutes trying to anticipate where this is likely to go, what's the future? Is it, the, is it wearable devices? Is it Google Glass? Are we are, are our cell phones going to be around 40, 50 years later? Are there going to be chips in our brains? What's going to happen? Well, uh, <laughs> it's very difficult to say. But if, if you just you know, look back, say, say, even 100 years ago, there were telephones in some way and then people could communicate in, in some other ways and so on. Yeah. And, you know, the original software was actually storytelling. I mean, you know, that was the real software. And then, right. you know, we developed hardware to support that. And now we are, you know, supporting hardware. We have hardware to support logical software and so on. Yeah. But uh, so, so that probably that basic theme of human evolution and societal interaction continues. Yeah. Uh, and we will essentially not see very different uh, structures in terms of society perhaps 50 100 years from now but what we will see perhaps is uh, a, a fair amount the inequalities in the world you know changing substantially i can't believe that the amount of inequality we have in the world today yeah uh, will survive in the same form for the next 50 years in, in well at least i would like to believe that and, and then basically because we are connecting these, it's like, you know, having a water tank up there and a water tank down there and then connecting them with a pipe, yeah. you know, so, and that pipe we have now connected. Now it, it will just a matter of time before we actually, some of that water kind of equalizes. Will it never be exactly equal perhaps, but there will always be some water flowing between those pipes. Biju, is there value in just being connected? There, that's, that's at of the course. level of the society, I think at a, at a human society, we we believe in network and and maintaining a network is an integral facet of human, uh, yeah. you know, interaction. To that extent, mobile phone will do the trick, uh, and will continue to play a role. But where I see mobile phone going to play even bigger, larger role is now mobile phone is sort of integrating a lot of things. Yeah. It integrated just not just it's not about communication alone. Anymore. Messaging is not anymore. But uh, camera has already come in an integral part. But bigger things like the your payment your credit and all that is going to come in through the mobile phone yeah. and that is going to suddenly your wallet and it's going to be your wallet your credit card all your payment systems all are going to get integrated into the mobile phone yeah. which basically means mobile phone is going to become maybe the most important uh, artificial uh, this one in your very personal yeah. space yeah. so that will happen yeah. but there has to be a uh, to me a, a, an opposite force because because of that you're suddenly available yeah. Because of that, you're suddenly now connected to everybody. Yeah. But, you know, good old song, we all heard it in 80s, which said, you know, everybody needs a little time far away, even yeah. from our lovers. And yeah. I'm sure there will be uh, a lot of societal rules will come in yeah. where we will allow people not to be connected. So I'm sure the cell phone etiquette a will, grammar will yeah evolve. a grammar will evolve. A grammar right. will evolve where it's also okay not to be connected. Right. Uh, it'd be interesting to really track that particular uh, direction and how the grammar would evolve. Right. But the grammar will evolve, there's no doubt. Right, 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 right. So terrific. It's great. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to all of you. We hope to see you soon again. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.